Let's keep that passage of uh, Mark open in front of us and let's bow our heads as we ask for God's help. This is my son. Listen to him. And our prayer, Father, this morning is that we would indeed be those who listen to Jesus. Help us by your spirit to have ears to hear him, wills and hearts rejoicing to obey him. And we ask it for his namesake. Amen. Well, in 1952, a swimmer from America called Florence Chadwick attempted the 26-mile swim between the California coastline and Catalina Island. She had a team with her in a boat that accompanied the swim, and their job was to watch out for sharks. Her mother was in the boats. But as they went on in the swim, 15 hours into it, she decided she could continue no further. A thick fog had descended, obscuring her vision and her confidence. She simply could not swim another hour. But the terrible reality is, she later discovered as the fog lifted, that she was just one mile from the shoreline. Two months later, she decided to swim again. Again, a thick fog set in, and she was tempted to give up. But she made it. And when asked later on why that was, what was different about the second attempt, she said this, I kept a mental image of the shoreline in my mind and pushed myself through. Last week, we had something of a sobering reality check, as Jesus said that he, the Messiah, must suffer and be rejected. And more than that, we saw that the pattern of kingdom life is that if we dare to follow him, we too will be suffer, we too will suffer and be rejected. The pattern and the template for our own lives is the cross. If anyone would come after me, says Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. So to become a Christian, to get baptized, is to sign up for death row. It is to join the death march that we saw last week. It is to live a life of public humiliation and disgrace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So there's an obvious elephant in the room, an obvious question. Is it really worth it? Is it really worth paying a cost like that? Because many will calculate the cost and say, it's not, it's too high. But this morning, Mark wants to encourage our minds and thrill our hearts with an awe-inspiring vision of the glorified Jesus and of the future that awaits us if we will embrace his cross. Because what Mark has for us is a stunning glimpse of eternal glory. In verse 2, it's now six days since Jesus spoke about his death at Caesarea Philippi. And for a week, the overwhelming horror of what lies ahead has been sinking in. They've begun the long journey to Jerusalem, but it's more like a, a funeral procession as they head with a sick dread in their hearts, their minds racing with terror as they contemplate the betrayal, the arrest, the execution of Jesus. So in verse 1, the journey is paused as Jesus now takes the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, 
apostles who will later write five of the New Testament books. He takes them up a high mountain. The location is almost certainly Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet in elevation. The peak covered in snow all year round. Because there's something they need to see and which we need to see with them. Because what's about to happen is one of the most dramatic moments in the whole of the Bible. As in quick succession, three quick events take place. First the vision, then the visitors, and then the voice. Verse 2, first the vision. He was transfigured before them. The Greek word uh, transfigured is the word metamorphosis. And the last time I heard that word was in biology. Meta for change, morphous for form. So as the tadpole in biology metamorphoses into the frog, or as the caterpillar in the chrysalis metamorphoses into the butterfly, what is happening is not a change of DNA or essence, but a change in the appearance of the form. They are transformed. And the doctrine, therefore, lying behind verse 2 is the divinity of Christ. And behind that, a very interesting idea called the hypostatic union. I was trying to explain this to my children in the car uh, the other day. You can test them on it later. It's a thrilling idea, the hypostatic union. But it is the idea that in Jesus, he is fully God and fully man at the same time. It's not like oil and water, where if you put oil and water in the same glass, it's 50% oil at the top and 50% water at the bottom, or is it the other way around? Um, it's not like a minotaur, where you have 50% uh, man and 50% beast, nor is it Jekyll and Hyde, so there's two personalities, a, a split personality, and sometimes Jesus is God, but other times he acts like man. The glory of this doctrine, the hypostatic union, is that he is perfectly God, perfectly man, and fully God, and fully man at every point and in every situation. This is the creed we confess, that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And yet, at the incarnation, as he becomes man, on that first Christmas day, and as he, as he lives as man, there is a sense in which his divinity is veiled. It's actually the Christmas carol that we love to sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. But here on the mountain, in verse 2, it's as if that veil temporarily on earth is, is taken away, and the full godness of God bursts out in all of its radiant glory. This then is a, is a theophany. If you like, it's a, it's a moment of epiphany as the hidden divine glory of Christ 
is seen in its full splendor. Verse 3, his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can launder them. That word radiant uh, is used in the ancient world of of burnished brass or or, or glistening gold or, or the golden glare of the sun. The glory of God in the Old Testament is depicted as brightness, but this is a glistening brightness that has never before been seen on earth. And from Luke's account, we know that this happened at night, which must have meant that the scene was incredible to look at. And each of the three gospel writers who have the transfiguration account mentioned this detail, that his clothes were white as light, whiter than white, blazing, dazzling, overwhelming. You'll never get your laundry to look like this, no matter how much bleach you put in or persil or tide. Wash it a thousand times in the laundromat and it's not going to look like this. Because this is the picture of Jesus' perfection in purity. Because the problem with our clothes is that they're not dazzling white because our character is dirty. We are stained and filthy. Think of the dirty thoughts that you have thought this week. The hate, malice, the lust, the self-pity, the greed, the malicious words. Because our, our hearts are like little factories of evil. Only this king can save us because only this king is perfect in purity. In London, near to where I used to work, there's a a building called the Royal Exchange. And the cross is the Royal Exchange. Because what happens at Calvary is he takes our filth, if you like, our, our filthy clothes upon himself. And then in that great transfer of grace, he gives us his purity and his perfection that we might be saved and included into his kingdom forever. So as John, the John who stands here, writes the book of Revelation at the end of his life, he can see this of the great multitude. These are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white, the same purity in the bloods of the Lamb. How then? Should we respond to a Jesus like this? The British Parliament is a very strange place for tourists, especially if they are from overseas. And the true story is told of an event that took place in the early 1990s when the leader of the opposition, a man called Neil Kinnock, was making his way along the corridors of power. As he came round the corner, he saw across the way the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Lane, who wanted to have a word with Neil Kinnock. The problem was that coming from the opposite direction was a group of Texan tourists. And all they could see was this figure of glory. The Lord Chief Justice in his full-bottomed wig, black and gold gown, gold medallions, 
breeches, buckled shoes. They saw this, this vision of glory. But the Lord Chief Justice wanted to have a word with his friend, Neil Kinnock. And so he shouted at the top of his voice, Neil! Neil! Whereupon the Texan party, um, not seeing Neil Kinnock or understanding who he was, on hearing the words, Neil! Neil! did indeed fall flat on their knees in homage to this great figure of glory before them. It's a true story, slightly ridiculous one, but something of the right response to how we should bow before this figure of glory. In Mark 13, Jesus continues to explain what this picture means. As he goes back to Daniel 7, that reading we had from the Old Testament, because the vision here is apocalyptic. This is the Son of Man of Daniel 7. But if you read Daniel 7, the whiteness and the splendor and the light belong to God. Yet this man, the Son of Man, who approaches God in Daniel 7, appears now to be God, for he bears the same glory because what Jesus is showing us here is that he is the king. He is the judge. He is the one who will stand at the end of the age in judgment as he comes as king and as savior. This vision of Christ, though, brings, I think, an urgent correction to us as to how we see Jesus. Because in the church today, in America, we no longer really think of Jesus as transcendent, only imminent. In the sermons we love to listen to, in the books that we love to read, the conferences we love to attend, and the songs that we love to sing, Jesus is really my psychiatrist, my buddy, my boyfriend. He's not so much a mighty king to be feared, more a therapist, there to help me with my angst. So Carl Truman says this, that we have exchanged transcendent frame for imminent frame, and we've turned in on ourselves. But Jesus is not my best buddy. He's my almighty king. There's a moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Mrs. Beaver is trying to explain to the children something about Aslan. Aslan, she says, is the lion, the great lion. Ooh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I shall feel quite nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Mrs. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. But we've made Jesus safe, a, a kitten to be cuddled. No, no, he's a lion to be feared. Don't presume on this king, because this bright light, this, this dazzling brightness are symbols of his glorious purity and power. And glory in the Old and New Testament is a word that depicts weight, heaviness, grandeur. One day we will see him in all his grandeur and weight. 
but we need to give him the weight he deserves. Speaking of American Christianity, and he may as well be speaking of European Christianity, the writer David Wells, in his book, God in the Wasteland, says this. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I don't mean by that that he's ethereal, but rather he's become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nevertheless consider him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And his truth less compelling than the advertisers. Sweet fog of flattery and lies. This is weightlessness. This picture, the vision, means that we need to get on our feet, on our knees, and, and bow before the glory of this king. The vision. But the vision is not all, because in verse 4, suddenly there's a second moment of extraordinary drama. The visitors. Verse 4, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. I wonder how close you've ever been to fame. Have you shook the hands of the governor or, or met the president? Well, imagine you're touring some English palace on vacation this August. You go through a door which is golden, and um, the door opens unexpectedly, and you walk in, and you're standing there alone, and then all of a sudden, Her Majesty the Queen arrives in the imperial state crown, full regalia, and she stands before you, and you begin a conversation with her. I guess that would be pretty overwhelming. Then, just as you're getting your head around that, suddenly Sir Winston Churchill appears with his cigar and top hat and begins talking with you as well. And then uh, the door opens again, and in is wheeled uh, President Roosevelt. You, You stand there with the Queen and these two great figures from the past, and then you wake up, and it was all a dream. But something like that is going on here. Because for the Jews, the great figures of the past were Moses, who gave the law, Elijah, who stood for the prophets, and then the great figure, the greatest figure, Messiah, who would one day come. So here they are on the mountain, and the greats from the Hall of Fame arrive. Moses, the giver of the law, and Elijah, the great prophet, and then Messiah. And verse 6, they were greatly afraid. It's the same phrase that is used of the shepherds on the mountain as the, as the angels arrive. They were literally overcome with terror. It's an understatement. Moses speaks on behalf of the law, and Elijah speaks on behalf of the prophets, and two, because in a Jewish court you need testimony to be established by two witnesses. By the way, both had lived hundreds of years before, and they are still alive and well. So there is life beyond death as they arrive on the mountain. But what is it that they're doing? They're standing with Jesus to say, here it is. This is the kingdom to which the law and the prophets were pointing for millennia. Interestingly, they're talking to Jesus, and Luke tells us what they're talking about. 
they're talking about the coming death of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom. This is a a heavenly conference. And on the agenda is just one thing, the, the suffering of Christ, the glory of Christ to come, and the establishment of the kingdom forever. Peter doesn't seem to get it. He says, Lord, it's good for us to be here, an understatement. And if you wish, we can make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He, he wants this glory to last. It's amazing. The kingdom is here, he's thinking. Let's build tents so we can be on the mountain together forever in this, this mountaintop experience. He's basking in the glory with these VIPs from the kingdom of God. But he doesn't understand that the roadmap to this glory is to go down the mountain and down to Jerusalem and down to death. For the glory must come through the cross. And just as he's getting his head around that, the cloud appears. And in the Old Testament, the appearance of a cloud just means one thing, the arrival of Almighty God in holy majesty. The cloud led the Israelites out of Egypt. The cloud descended on Mount Sinai. The cloud filled the temple in Jerusalem on the day of its consecration. This cloud now overshadows them as their terror level goes to DEFCON 1 for the third dramatic moments as we move from the vision to the visitors and now the voice. A voice from the clouds. This is my son. As far as I can tell, this is the only time in the New Testaments where God the Father speaks audibly. Jesus speaks audibly on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But I think this is the only time in the New Testament when on earth God the Father speaks from heaven. It is incredible. So what's the sermon? What's the message of the Father to earth? What's the point? This is my son. That word son means Messiah. It's taken from 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. This is the anointed king. This is Messiah. This is the chosen one. This is the ruling one. This is the man who will rule over the universe forever. But actually, that word son is also taken from Isaiah 53, where the son will be the suffering servants who will die, pierced for our transgressions. But this dramatic moment should end all debate forever if you're here thinking, who is Jesus? Well, he's not just a religious guru like the Dalai Lama or a great inspiration like the Buddha. He's not just the founder of a great religion like Mohammed or a great moral example like Mother Teresa, or a challenge to the establishment like Greta Thunberg. He is God's eternal king. And this event, it really happens in 2 Peter 2, 16. Peter gives his own eyewitness testimony as he writes, we did not follow clearly invented stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus in power. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from the majestic glory saying, this 
is my son. This is my son. That's the sermon. But like any good sermon, what's the application? We need to ask of every sermon, the so what? This is my son, so what? Well, it's a good sermon because it comes from God the Father and there is a point, this is my son, and there is an application, listen to him. There are different types of listening. So when I'm on an airplane and the safety announcement is happening, I don't listen. I've heard it before, and I don't think the plane is going to crash. When I'm in the car and the radio is on, not really listening, it's kind of background noise. Or when the news is on and you're preparing dinner, it's on in the background and I zone in and out, but I'm not really listening. No, listen here doesn't mean that. It means to pay attention to and to heed and to obey in the same sense that you as a parent would expect your child to obey when you say, don't cross the road without holding on to my hand. Are you listening? It would be the same kind of listening that we might engage with if we received a letter from the IRS saying, unless you actually pay this now, you're going to be going to court with a $250,000 fine. It's the same kind of listening that this is, that a police officer who says, listen to what I'm about to tell you and do what I'm about to ask you to do, or I will arrest you. We listen then. This king is teaching his words But in particular, what we are to listen to here in Mark 9 is the teaching of this king about the cross. Mark 9 follows Mark 8. In Mark 8, Jesus has said, I must go to the cross, and so must we. The Father now intervenes to say, listen to Jesus. Listen to him as he teaches you how to be saved through a gospel of grace and mercy and forgiveness as he, the innocent one, takes your sin. Listen to him. It is quite extraordinary what's going on here on the mountain. In actual fact, this is seismic. There's every sense in which this is like Sinai. At Sinai, they were up a high mountain. At Sinai, the cloud descends. At Sinai, the glory of God shines. At Sinai, God speaks. At Sinai... Moses is present. This is a new Sinai, but it's very interesting what God the Father is saying. As Moses stands there, the Father is not saying, listen to Moses. He's saying, listen to the Messiah. Because what's happening theologically is we're moving from the old covenants to the new covenants. No longer are we to listen to the law of Moses that condemns us. Now we are to listen to the gospel of grace which saves us. We are moving on the mountain from the synactic covenant of Moses to the the new covenant shed in his own blood. And Moses and Elijah stand there, if you like, as ambassadors from heaven to say, yes, Listen to the gospel of grace. Listen to the king of love who will die at Calvary for the forgiveness of your sins. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 1 then puts it like this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets. 
at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Are you listening to the word of Jesus, this king of grace? Do we understand his teaching, which is a V, as we thought last week? Are we listening to his teaching about that great V, that the way to be saved is that Jesus from glory must go down to death on a cross, then to be vindicated? And are we listening to Jesus as we understand that the pattern of our own discipleship is to trace that same line in our own lives down to humiliation and death and suffering and shame, then to be vindicated for glory? Because the glory we see here in Jesus is the glory we will share on the day of glory when we are transformed into his likeness in his kingdom forever. The vision becomes the visitors and then the voice. But there's one last very brief point, the vanguard. I love the word vanguard. The Royal Navy has a nuclear submarine called HMS, vanguard. Uh, the word actually is a fascinating word, vanguard. It's a French word meaning avant, uh, in front of. Um, the word vanguard really means the one who goes in front of, if you like, as the arrival party or the preparation party. So HMS vanguards will go ahead of the fleets and she'll guard the fleet as the aircraft carriers and the frigates come in. That The job of the vanguard is to go ahead of and prepare the way for. I suppose it's the same if you're in Washington, D.C. and you see the police outriders, the Secret Service arrive. They are, they are the vanguard. They prepare the way, and then Potus arrives in all of his glory in the beast. Well, the Jews knew that the vanguard would be Elijah. Before Messiah could come, uh, Elijah would have to come. So if you're saying this, this is the kingdom and he is the Messiah, where, where is Elijah is the question. And Jesus' answer is that Elijah has been and gone. It's John the Baptist. Verse 11 but look at what happened to John the Baptist as his head was removed from his shoulders in that gory dinner party as his message of repentance was rejected by a sinful and complicit palace. No, the vanguard has been and gone. But what's happened to the vanguard? He's been executed. And therefore, we see not just the word of the Father saying, listen to this king on the cross. We don't just have the visitors saying, listen to the king who will die at the cross. The vanguard also presents the template of what kingdom living will look like. This side of glory, we will suffer death, shame, and humiliation. I do think the story of Florence Chadwick is extraordinary. What an amazing woman to persist and to win when actually she lost. But what was it that kept her going towards that end point in the pain and agony of the swim in the fog? She said this, 
I kept a mental image of the shoreline in my mind. And I don't know what suffering God is allowing in your life right now. It could be anything from a cancer diagnosis to family friction to pain with your children, a difficult workplace. It could be the persecution of belonging to Christ. What suffering are you enduring, allowed by God? Keep this image of the shoreline in your minds, because Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory which will be revealed in us. Let's pray. This is my son. Listen to him. Father, we ask your forgiveness for the times when we've listened to our own sinful hearts and when we've listened to the culture or we've listened to false religion. Have mercy upon us and give us ears to hear and wills to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.